clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's Uniquely Rockefeller special client event. Today's event is the 43rd in our series and will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming and Chip Kay, CEO of Warper Pincus. With that, as always, it's my pleasure to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom, and good afternoon to clients of Rockefeller Capital Management, our colleagues and other friends of Rockefeller. And as Tom said, welcome to our 43rd in our client series, which we began over two years ago, two and a half years ago now when, uh, when the COVID crisis started. Uh, it's my great pleasure uh, to have with me live here in New York today, uh, Chip Kay, uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Warburg Pincus. Uh, Chip and I will have uh, a great conversation uh, that will be wide ranging in its topics, including the coverage uh, of the world given Warburg Pincus's uh, footprint. Uh, Chip, as, uh, as I said, is the CEO of Warburg Pincus, uh, having started his career at Warburg in 1986. So 36 years at Warburg Pincus, uh, what an impact. Um, he uh, led uh, Warburg Pincus's entry into Asia in 1994 long time ago, building one of the firms, uh, one of the first global private equity firms uh, in the region, and they have real scale there now. We're going to talk about that. We're going to spend a fair amount of time on Warburg Pincus, its footprint, its growth across the different uh, parts of the world, uh, and also the way they see investments uh, around the world uh, as we uh, uh, have the conversation today. Uh, Chip uh, serves on the board of the U.S.-India Strategic Partnership Forum. He's vice chairman of the board of trustees of New York Presbyterian Hospital. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the Private Equity Task Force of the Sustainable Markets Initiative. He's a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, I've known Chip a long time and we're uh, uh, lucky to have him with us today. So thank you for Great being to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Great. So Chip, let's start with, um, uh, with your background, a little bit about your background. Um, almost, let's start with growing up, school and then career path, which pretty quickly got to Warburg, but maybe not, you didn't join right out of school. No. I did. Oh, so, you did. Uh, yeah. yeah, so I, I actually was, I was born in Colorado. I bounced around New York, New Jersey, Oklahoma. I grew up in Texas and Dallas, went to school at UT Austin. Uh, and I, uh, to my parents' great chagrin, I skipped my high school. I skipped my college graduation to come to work at Warburg Pincus 36 and a half years ago. So one job, uh, one college, one job, very short resume. That is amazing. I mean, we were talking about this before in 36 and a half years is one company. Also, a company with the performance culture like Warburg Pincus. I mean, you'll be modest about this, but that's an incredible accomplishment. Uh, and obviously, the firm has benefited enormously. But let's actually do some of the fun facts around the firm that you started, the number of employees, uh, and then the scale that's been created since then. So, in 1986, you joined the firm with how many employees? So, uh, firm, the firm itself was started in 1966. So, it was uh, one of the probably the oldest. Uh, one of the oldest private equity firms in the world, formed its first fund in 1971. Uh, I joined in 1986, uh, which we at the time were managing, wasn't called this, but essentially was Warburg Pincus III, uh, which was about a 340 odd million dollar fund. Uh, the year after I joined, we raised uh, the first billion dollar pool of capital. The firm also sort of began to internationalize starting in Europe. Uh, and fast forward today, we're right at the tail end of raising Warburg Pincus 14. Uh, which will be, I don't know, 16 or so billion dollars. And the firm's assets under management aggregate about $80 billion all around uh, growth-oriented private equity, hence the name of the firms, the funds we now call Porter Pincus Global Growth. Yeah. And you mentioned... Uh, oh, we grew, when I joined, probably 30 people, uh, something like that. Uh, I think we were talking before, I'd made a joke, I was just in Singapore in our office there, and today we have, you know, more people there than we had a firm when I joined. Uh, today it's about 800 people, 300 invested professionals, um, but still a old fashioned private partnership, you know, run and owned by its partners and, and um, you know, the same basic underlying culture and value set and orientation about investing that has, you know, now a 50 year investing track record, which is not something a lot of institutions have. Uh, we, we haven't, I, I uh, hadn't asked this before, a uh, number of CEOs in its history now, it's kind of just a handful. You had two. Two. <laughs> And it's a tribute to uh, the, the continuity and the, you know, the firm that's been created that is in part a function of such consistent leadership. So um, we, we'll get into that more, but um, 
you went to uh, Asia and specifically Hong Kong in 1994. The world's changed a lot everywhere, but certainly there since then. Uh, do you have the same level of confidence in that market as you did? Must have been exciting times in 1994, and the handover was 97. Yeah. yeah, I actually was first in China when I was going to college in 1982. And I always remember it because, you yeah. know, uh, uh, just have these mental images in my head. But, you know, China grew from uh, $200 billion in 1982 to about $16 trillion today. So it grew 10% for 40 years. So I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but you know the 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 still is one of one of the you know all time great economic success stories. But I moved to Hong Kong in '94 to start a business in Asia. It wasn't clear what that actually even meant. Uh, the crisis came in '97, and I think was the Did moment. Just in '94, you were the first one over there. That's I was you, it. I you were the business. You were the in, I was in Asia. That was it. Yeah, a lot of people thought it was kind of there and gone, but um, I think our DNA fit that part of the world. I mean, we've always been more of a growth-oriented, partnership-building, business-building culture, and that kind of fit there well. And the crisis in 97 was uh, a huge event across the region. And for us, it really focused our attention, which had started that way anyway, very squirrely in both China and in India, which were kind of like two continental-sized uh, places there. So we've got you know long history there, almost 30 years now, and it's a meaningful part of where the firm about a third of the firm lives there today. It's about a third of our business, um, not only today in China and India, but over the last decade, we've also we built a sizable uh, presence across Southeast Asia and our real estate business all over the top of it. So it's become an interesting uh, piece to the firm. But personally for me, it was probably the most fun I ever had in my life, even relative to today, because you felt like you were just creating something literally from scratch, done it here. Yeah. Uh, and there's something, and what, doing it in a part of the world that was constantly changing. People always used to ask me, you know, what did I, what did I, uh, what did I find interesting or fascinating about it? And I would say it was a part of the world where history hasn't been written yet. You don't know what's going to happen. We can all have our opinions, but that degree of uncertainty to me was and still is um, energizing. Yeah, it's still ongoing. So you were married before you went out there in 1994. I was married with one child. Yeah. I was under one, and then we had two there one on either side of the handover. So in theory, I have all three of my children born in different countries. Wow. Uh, and they lived, and how long did you live out there? We were there from 94 and through 99. Wow. So that was a big formative time for the whole family. Um, so one more question on, on kind of the firm and uh, the background of the firm, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Uh, 80 billion in assets under management, incredible success, also for investors and LPs over so many years. For you though, how do you measure success? I mean, is it is it if, if 80 goes to 100? Is it performance? Is it, uh, you know, you care a lot about your employees, but how do you think about it? Well, I mean, I think for, for investors, it's consistency and persistence of return over time. And I think probably the thing we feel best about over the arc of the 14 odd core funds that we've raised is they've all been, you know, consistent performance. There aren't, leave this one out, exclude the other thing. It's the consistency over time. I've always said, you know, it's not, necessarily just how much you make when things go up it's how little you give back when things go down and it's that consistency over time uh for our investors which i think is the uh the core reason people stay attracting probably the stat i feel best about to the places we've now returned profits of more than 100 billion dollars uh, to our investors so the aggregate dollars that have gone to the beneficiaries of uh of our clients uh is you know matters to me and I, you know i think uh you know, internally, we've obviously stayed focused, you know, as a private partnership and focused on uh, on growth equity. That's our DNA, it's who we are. Um, that's sort of a set of choices we've made and sort of have, how they define us. And it's been less about uh, an AUM gathering strategy than one about thinking about it, how we would manage our own money. And for most of us, it is all of our own money. Um, and it's been about the kind of, you know, being, it's about creating a place that feels special and a place that people want to be and they can build a life and a career. And that shows up with um, the consistency of, of uh, partners at the top. It beats up our top, I don't know, 30 odd partners that are the people really, you know, kind of the top half of the investing partnership for the group. I mean, their average length of tenure is like 16, 17 years now. So it's people that, you know, not just me, but others who join and at earlier points in their career and, and can build a life and can build a career and uh, can be in a place that they love uh, the passion and, of investing. You know, the, it's interesting. That's what, as you said, we've, we've basically started uh, 
in the Ball Rock and Cove, and we really uh, built two businesses from scratch. But a big part of the focus here, which you've done so successfully there, and the continuity of things, spent a lot of it, is trying to create an environment that people want to be in, that they feel stimulated, motivated. We talk about getting off the elevator and happy to be there. That's it. You've accomplished that at Woodward Pincus consistently over the years. Yeah, I'd say, look, I mean, culture matters, and culture doesn't happen. It's actually something you've got to work at. 100% agree with all that. Sorry to cut you off. No. We talk about that a lot here because we're early on that scale. Yeah. The thing I always said about it is, you know, I've always believed that people do what you incent them to do. They don't do what you tell them to do. And sometimes people mistake the two. You know, they'll preach something or they'll have posters up and, you know, nice little statements and the like. But the reality is the underlying culture actually promotes, you know, individual behavior. And if the incentive system says something, if the incentive system, uh, is architected that way, you kind of miss the boat. And I think for us, you know, the basic underlying uh, structure of the partnership and our relationship with our investors is all designed, is all designed to create that alignment of incentives uh, and reinforce the culture. And is that because you have had a pretty uh, broadly distributed workforce, more than most private equity firms. I mean, as we, we were talking, maybe half of the investment professionals are not in New York. Uh, is that that's been the glue to creating a global team? Uh, yeah, I mean, simplistically, uh, there is a single global partnership, and every partner and probably another couple hundred people on a phantom basis share in the success of that one entity. There's nobody that has any different deal. They don't own more of their own deal, fund, sector, geography. So if you took me or any other one of those people, you would do the math all the way down to what percentage of it we were entitled to and it'd be the same. And that is very powerful uh, in its alignment. And the second thing I'd say beyond that, sort of to your global point is comp for us, uh, for all our professionals is global. So if you're the same level of a associate or principal or partner, uh, whether you're in the US or China or India or Europe or Brazil, you make the exact same amount of money. Yeah. So that that's, again, that's back to you know, there isn't this glass ceiling that people feel around the world. They all feel the same way. And if you traveled around to an office anywhere, I think you'd get the same feel to the place. And that's probably helped you be careful because when I look at you over the years, you've been careful extending products and, and you know, the, the core mandate is growth and, you know, going over here because that's a particularly high area at any point in time over the, 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 the period of our careers. Corporate Pincus has really stayed close to its knitting. I mean, you're big in real estate now, but you've been careful of the product extension as well. No, I mean, I mean, I think, look, you know, the growth equity thing is 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 where our DNA began. It's still all that we do. Uh, and um, you know, the other part, you know, we you know we went through our founder generation, you know, 20 years ago, and so that there isn't that concentration of ownership also that creates the incentive to do something else. It's a broad-based ownership and a real partnership that gets to decide what they want to do. And for most of us, we want to go practice the art of investing, and we get a platform to do that. It's less trying to create an entity that we're going to sometime do something with. It's a great philosophy. Um, now, one of the things that you also uh, have brought in are uh, uh, emphasizing ESG standards um, and, um, and putting that into the business. Can you talk a little bit about how that works within Warburg Pincus? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I think of ESG is sort of in two different ways. One of it is it's um, it's a bit of a way of thinking about left tail risk on anything we do. In other words, it's sort of a risk assessment process, right? It's a way of thinking about what are the things we should worry about uh, on our way into an investment. And so it's, it's fully integrated in that sense, uh, as opposed to kind of a checklist of things that are separate from investment decision making. And the other side of it is, you know, if you integrate it into kind of, uh, the entities that we invest in themselves, you know, I think they'll be worth more at the end. So it's kind of a value creation thing. But I think it, the, the, to me, the, the hard part, I think the one we're still working at is how to make that an integrated, organic, natural thing as opposed to like a separate thing uh, that sits outside the process and isn't. In the old days, we would have called it, you know, being good corporate citizens. And it's just sort of, it's a different way of saying it. Uh, and it's a different set of standards. but. The key is still having it sort of integrated uh, into uh, the process itself. We've done a lot of that here because the Rockefellers were early investors uh, in ESG. And in fact, uh, the phrase impact investing was coined in Rockefeller Foundation's sister entity in 2007. 
So we've got it integrated in our asset management business here, including uh, focusing on what we call improvers as opposed to just leaders. So if the company is actually making progress on, on ESG dimensions, then we'll invest there, even if it's in a space that others might be trying to stay away from. Because you know, looking for the best investments, you're going to be looking for those that are going in the right direction. So same same thing here. Just trying to pull it all together. I agree with that. So uh, Chip, uh, one of the things again in terms of the Warburg Pincus consistency, um, you know, through things like uh, all the things that happened in the late '90s, credit crisis, COVID, you kept going. What lessons do you have in terms of uh, you know facing crises like this and and navigating them as well as, frankly, with hindsight, what we're pinkest hacks. Well, I sort of alluded to this earlier. I mean, you kind of really figure out who's an investor when the tide goes out, not when times are good. And one of the complexities that the investing world has is we're at a moment where it's been 15 years since we had one of these. And therefore, there's a generation of people that feel like they haven't experienced it. And I think that's one of the challenges I think every organization faces. You know, good or bad, you and I started our career roughly similarly. I mean, you know, we lived through October of 87. We lived through the early 90s and the bank crisis. I lived through the Asian crisis thing. We lived through the- You were there for the, the, the Asian crisis. Correct. Yes. Lived, you know, we lived through the dot-com thing in 2001 and the 08. So, you know, they're all different. Uh, and I'd say, you know, the lesson always is, you know, everybody, it, when they come, uh, everybody, you know, first somehow thinks they're a blip or they're not real or there's something about it that's going to be not so bad. And then it turns out it usually is pretty bad. Uh, I think we're right in the middle of this one at the moment. And then actually sort of shift where people get a little too dark. Uh, yeah. And um, they think somehow this is, you know, the end of the end of everything. You know, I think the uh, the important thing is, is always uh, to uh, kind of maintain that balance. I mean, I found myself in 2020, 21, for example, more like leaning against stuff because you didn't know when, you didn't know how, but it all felt a little funky. Um, and I think we look today, and I think a lot of what a lot of what the the great performance that everybody saw there in 2021 is going to look like a mirage, as we now are all facing how much of that we might all you might give back, if you will. Um, and if anything, I think today uh, we're kind of right in the middle of it. There'll be a moment you almost got to lean the other way, even if you can't exactly figure out what the way the path out of it is. You've got to give people a sense of confidence that. Uh, you know, the future's there. Uh, but I think we're, this one we're right in the middle of, but it's, uh, who knows how it exactly plays. Nobody ever really knows, but this feels more regime change like to me than it does, um, you know, kind of cyclical bit. Yeah. But, you know, but to, to the point you're raising, when you've had so many things like, and we have had uh, similar, uh, you know, we started uh, at a similar time on the career path. I was actually talking to Bruce Flatter, you may know from Brookfield, uh, on this very program, I don't know, six months ago. And, and Bruce said exactly what you just said, which is, well, Greg, don't we have something every few years? Uh, and, and you know, at the time, people either trying to understate it or overstate it. But he was actually saying that during the pandemic, at the beginning of the pandemic, the two big concerns were deflation and robots. Would people ever get their jobs back? Right? That was just a couple of years ago. Yeah. So, you know, you can have massive monetary and fiscal stimulus and you can deal with deflation and we don't have enough workers. So, you know, he, he, like you, he said, you know, things come and they're going to always come. Uh, I, I, uh, I agree with you as well. We're kind of partway in this and we're going to see where it unfolds, but people do get dark, you know, and, and the, you know, everything starts to go through the negative lens. And then, you know, when that kind of settles, you're starting to come out the other side. Yeah, well, I agree with that. I do think, you know, uh, Obviously, you know, 2022 has sort of, you know, shifted everybody's perspective. Uh, I do think this one to me feels like there's lots of, you know, risks and issues in the world to contend with. The two that are very different to me this time uh, are one, inflation, which isn't something really we've, even we've seen in our careers. That's a 1970s phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, and I don't Before think we start. Correct. Yeah. I don't mean to say that in the sense of it's going to look like the 70s. I really kind of really believe that. Uh, but that's a new thing. I mean, that's not something we've seen. And that kind of secular decline in inflation and rates that you could argue goes back to the early 80s, uh, kind of when our careers began, kind of underpinned this very long dated rise in asset prices um, that <clears throat> investors have benefited from. And this is going to change that in some ways. It doesn't have to be awful, but it's going to be different. And the second I'd say is, <clears throat> you know, we've lived in a world uh, without great power conflict. 
really since the early 90s. And you could argue before then because the Soviet Union wasn't a particularly integrated global economic player. And today, it's not just obviously the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, which is, you know, altering the economic landscape in Europe. But the big one is, you know, you've got the two largest economies in the world that constitute 40% of global GDP that are at odds. And, um, you know, navigating that, geo navigating that friction, I think, is going to be a uh, a challenge for businesses and investors. Yeah, no question. And we're going to get to that, but uh, we we can start to to shift into the the many insights you have uh, on the on the geopolitical side. So, um, supply chain, the geopolitical, Ukraine, Russia. Um, at the end of the day, as you look at all of this, uh, at, at, on the other side of this, and you said we're kind of halfway through. Is, is there continued to be at you know at some point in time? renewed global growth, global wealth creation. On the other side of this, despite all of that, that do we have the inflection that you've, you and I have seen through the, the last four years? You know, I, um, I mean, I, the answer is, like my reaction is, I think the, the economic side of the inflation argument, I, you know, my, my gut says it's likely to be somewhat shallow. Central banks know how to deal with this, and if, uh, if it overdoes it, it knows how to correct. So I, I kind of feel like the other side of this may not be an exact version of what it looked like before, but it's not terribly dissimilar. But I will say, you know, we all lived through a period of time these last few decades where that persistent decline in inflation and rates tended to mean that tended to mean that you were buying at one price, one multiple, and then buying it tended to be selling at something higher. And we may be in a little bit of a world where some of that may be different, uh, especially for people who leaned too heavily into 2021, for example. But so I think the economic effects don't feel as uh, they'll be, they're not being, you know, they feel uh, more manageable to me than what might be some of the pain for investors, depending upon how they've positioned themselves over the last couple of years. Um, the geopolitical, the, the geopolitical friction one to me is the harder one because that is true uncertainty, and we just really don't know. Uh, Before we go to that, let's go back to the investment side for a second. Uh, uh, from a Warburg Pinkus standpoint, as you look at that. Uh, with the, the, you went in at one multiple, you got out at a higher multiple for a long time. Does that cause you to uh, to tilt toward different industries, different parts of the world? I mean, is it is it creating a different, you know, allocation on, on either a, an industry uh, or, or ge geographic basis for you all? Well, we've always been more of a, I mean, growth-oriented investor, kind of why we call things global growth, but. Uh, and what and if you looked at when we disaggregate return, we tend to still drive two-thirds of where we generate profits sort of from the growth of the underlying business as opposed to the leverage effect or the multiple effect. Two-thirds. Yeah. So if you might be like, different, which is higher for you. Correct. In fact, you could argue it's one of the maybe it's one of the places we were, you know, we didn't we weren't as aggressive about at moments in time. Yeah, the bubble moments. Correct. Oh like six or yeah. Correct. But our history is always, I've always viewed it like you go create a real business and it grows and you're, you're creating some sense of underlying real value. You'll pick the moments in time at which to go monetize it. The flips, the flip side is the harder one when you're just sort of, you know, playing momentum and thinking the market will somehow take you out. And sometimes that works really well until it doesn't. And I think sometimes people mistake the difference between growth and momentum. And that was particularly true over the last few years where I, to me, one of the most peculiar things that went on in 2021 was where uh, pr as prices went up, people's interest in buying went up. In other words, the more expensive it became, the more interesting it became, which is a weird phenomenon. That's actually not the way investing is supposed to work. Uh, and I think people just became myopically fixated on growth at any price, even if there wasn't some real model, some real business model that stood underneath it. So I think for us, it's it sort of is it's a reminder that the real growth of underlying business is what matters. That has been the core of what we've done, particularly on the tech and tech related stuff, where we're investing in businesses that just do grow at very high rates. But it's also put a premium on something we've uh, been doing a lot more of is these platforms for growth, where we will find maybe a more mature space in industrial sort of services of some kind and create sort of some roll up or operational transformation of something. But it's also the reason we're a little bit outsized in parts of the world that grow. And so it's either, you know, uh, buy things that are growing, create growth, or invest in places that are growing. But, you know, the answer to me is you got to go find things that grow in this world as opposed to, you know, the financial engineering dimensions of things may actually go in reverse for a little bit. Yeah. 
And actually, uh, if you look at Warburg Pincus's history, when financial engineering and the ability to use that to invest was at its highest levels at different points in time, you all were avoiding that. And maybe, you know, that those were slightly slower periods for you relative to those who just went all in. And then when it comes back to where we are now, which is, well, that's evaporating. And it's back to underlying businesses and the characteristically underlying businesses. This is really a world that's moving back toward Wilbur Pinkins, right? Uh, I, I mean, if you, you know, uh, if you talk to like our my partners and our technologies, they're 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 more excited today than they were a few years ago. There's great frustration then, and but I think your point is is completely spot on, which is ours is a model that's designed more for this consistency of performance, which means. At the euphoric peaks, it never looks, you know, it doesn't look like it's somehow capturing all of it because it's not. But what it's also not doing is is giving it all back and more uh, when the tide goes out. So does it lead you now at this point in time? You don't really change anything within where we're thinking in terms of how you do things, but does it result in a different tilt from a geographic or industry standpoint? You end up with more investments in, in the US or less investments in the US, less technology, more healthcare, is it or well, I mean, look, I mean, it's, it's a little more organic. I mean, to me, the other part of this is like diversification matters, right? So, I mean, uh, it's we also you want to create diversification doesn't just mean sector geography. It also means time, right? So, you, know, you also saw some things that got invested too quickly, uh, especially during it. So time diversification matters as well. Uh, I mean, look, you know, the the uh, the, the uh, you know, tech is obviously a big, huge driver unto itself. But to me, what the big, the big evolution is that tech's everything. So it's not like it's a separate thing. Uh, and for us, where I'd say some of the most interesting opportunities have been is in these cross-collaborative, more interdisciplinary spaces, right? Where long-standing presence in financial services or healthcare intersects with technology, and you can't tell the difference anymore. Um, so I don't know any traditional bank or insurance business or asset manager your old world that shouldn't be worrying a lot about technology, how they reinvent themselves rather relative to dealing with the innovators uh, or frankly investing in the innovators the other round. And uh, so to us that it's that cross-disciplinary uh, dimension that's probably become even more relevant. I think that's spot on. I, I talk about this all the time. It's 2022. In 2022, if world-class technology isn't part of your business, whatever your business model is, you're not going to get there. And so we spend, you know, we invest a lot on the technology side. You have a great team, and that's part of every model now. So that the convergence of that. In fact, if you look at even some of the big financial institutions and the retail banks, they're mostly technology firms now. You know, you have the storefronts, but broadly speaking, they're technology firms, right? Well, if you look at a lot of them, you probably discover they probably have more people in technology than they necessarily do in a lot of other functions. So, look, yeah. I think tech's, any, tech's everything. So, yeah. I think it's just become a more integrated. And so, for us, you get to either choose, am I investing in the incumbent in order to arm them to go deal with the new environment or sell things to them that allow them to do that? Or do we also invest in the innovator? Yeah, that are changing things, and you know the answer is both. And yeah. it depends a little bit in different parts of the world, both around. But I think the advantage we tend to bring is by having long-standing presence in the traditional space. You understand the not just the industry environment, but frankly the regulatory environment, you know, particularly in something like finance, pretty important. Versus place maybe places who come at it from a pure tech point of view that don't always understand necessarily that there is a regulated universe you've yeah. got to learn to deal with. So bringing both of those to bear can be pretty important. Look, I think you're spot on. And the reality is, you know, you, you could argue, well, traditional is going to fall behind uh, the, the innovators. Not always. The, the, the amount of capital that the traditional can bring, and, and actually, the, again, the big banks are a good example of that. You have fintech, and there's a lot of innovation, but the big banks are cranking along on their own with huge technology budgets. You can buy the fintech company, right? And that's how you all think I about think it. a lot of that's going to happen now. One of the interesting parts will be when the tide goes out, the, the, the ability to raise capital disappears, whether the banks actually end up being the acquirers uh, of some number of these things. It's interesting, when we created our own sort of uh, kind of digital first uh, uh, bank called Varo, uh, it was actually the US first, first U.S. fintech to go get a banking license. So we created it from inception to be a bank. Uh, as opposed That's to some multi-year process, right? To get correct, the regulatory, yeah. correct. As opposed to deciding all of a sudden now there's a crisis, we need to somehow figure that out. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I think, I think 
you're exactly right, which is those, and when, you know, history suggests that some of these sort of more monoline kinds of businesses, when the crisis comes, it's the big guys that tend to be able to take advantage of that. Yeah. So one, another thing on the Warbird side, uh, and this has been true since, you know, all the time I've known Warbird, you have a value creation team that works with portfolio companies and it is viewed as part of the secret sauce of Warbird. In fact, most of your competitors have tried to uh, mirror it in some way and have in-house talent to work with portfolio companies, but you all were early and this is core. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about how that works? Sure. I mean, you know, this probably started, I don't know, 25 plus years ago. And yeah. It used to be more bespoke functions. You know, we have people at capital markets or human capital or technology or, you know, people. We've now, over the last handful of years, probably the, the probably been the place we have invested the most. It's now about 75 people. Um, I do a firm with 800 people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, uh, it basically, we have modularized a series of what we think of are the most important functions that we tend to see. So things like commercial go-to-market strategy and product uh, technology roadmap and human capital and finance and operations and kind of a business development M&A capability. And we've got a set of resources and sort of a template about how we can go in and uh, uh, offer that up to uh, the businesses we invest in. It's all, and we're capturing the data that comes from all of it through uh, a sort of integrated coordinated process. It's run by three people. One who's a classic chief technology officer, one who's sort of a chief transformation project management sort, and one who's sort of a classic chief revenue officer. It's all integrated. And the goal of it isn't to uh, tell management what to do. The way we think of it is the goal is, can we accelerate uh, the achievement of management's goals by bringing a set of resources to bear that might be greater than what they themselves know? Uh, and it's, uh, it's, not, it's not a lot of former CEO stuff. It's people who are in the weeds and do stuff. So for example, you know, I always use the example, probably one of the most interesting things we have, we have a person who does SaaS pricing, like that's it. So it's very modularized, it's bespoke, uh, it's built around each investment we make, uh, and it has become a big important part. Look, we live in a, we've lived in a world for a while where it was hard to make money with how you bought something. It's what you then did with it. So our ability to accelerate growth or uh, create these platforms for growth, which tend to be the ones that are the most operationally intensive, has been a big, has been a big part of that. And that effort, uh, while, uh, a good part of it sits in the U.S. It's something that exists globally. And, and do many or most of your portfolio companies draw on that? Because as you said, you're not pushing them, but it's there. Yeah, don't get charged. It's, you know, we don't, it's not a separate thing. We don't yeah. get charged for it. None of that. Uh, it's just there for them. It's there for them. And, you know, the answer is, look, I think what people are finding, especially in some ways through the pandemic, it even happened more so, people were desperate in looking for people that could help them. Yeah. Uh, and there's a peer-to-peer -peer dimension of this as well, of being able to create connectivity. But I think the core for it for us is um, it's not, it's not, it, um, it's very bespoke. In other words, the first thing we do after we invest with a company is to kind of sit down and say, you know, here's what we learned through this process. Here's where we sort of feel priorities are. Where do we align on that? Not do we agree on the 50, do we agree on the two or three that really matter? And then our ability to deliver it, again, it's this, it's very sort of modularized and packetized, meaning there's certain things we've seen and we know how to go do. Uh, and I think people see that if it accelerates the achievement of their goal, not telling them what the goal should be, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. Well, that's why it's worked so well, as you said, quarter century. So we, we need to go to China, given that your insight there is, uh, is your, your, your history is as long as any American executive. Your insight is significant. So um, you have three offices in China. So you're in uh, uh, Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong. Okay. Um, your perspective on where we are, U.S.-China relations, as you said, 40% of world GDP. Uh, as much as we've lived through lots of cycles, as you said, never been in a time where the two biggest and, and, and strongest economies in the world are, you know, arguably at odds. Um, how is that going to affect investing, portfolio companies? Or even uh, we can talk about global growth, but uh, the whole China situation now. So look, I'd say there, there's two different perspectives to take. Um, one is about what's happening in China itself. And I think that's a, that's a set of observations about, you know, some set of policies they've pursued over the last few years 
um, uh, around, you know, their own sort of anti-monopoly, you know, internet platform stuff around trying to reduce the dependence of growth on uh, real estate around uh, what they sometimes term the common prosperity agenda and the like. And, you know, any one of them, you kind of understand where it's coming from. They're trying to create more sustainability around growth. Um, but obviously the politics have shifted there as well. Clear to say, fair to say there's a fair bit of uncertainty about that set of uh, topics and they've got their party Congress in a couple of weeks and we'll learn a little bit more. And, you know, I'd say the next year is going to be pretty revealing as to kind of understanding how it is they're managing through what are what I view as the domestic set of uh, issues that they face. And, uh, you know, after 40 years of 10% growth, the idea that, you know, there's a little bit of working through the digestion and then figuring out next, I don't know, Let, let's see. I, I actually sort of feel like everybody may be a little too dark uh, at the moment on that set of what I'll call domestic, uh, what's happening within it. Um, Particularly given, as you said, I used to say uh, if China were a public company, they would trade at a very high multiple, 40 years of 10% growth. I mean, it's, all, it's a $16 trillion economy. That's sort of the second from part. 200 million when you show up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, and, you know, so that, that to me is sort of the second part. Look, I, the part I would say that is, uh, yeah, that is more bothersome uh, is obviously the, that the the broad relationship between the two is more is is more, feels more problematic, and what had been a uh, relationship of interdependence now has both sides looking to reduce that degree of interdependence around their own set of each of their own set of strategic issues and their own set of domestic politics. Um, and uh, so the rhetoric, I think, is going to continue to stay quite noisy and loud. The reality is that the degree of interdependence is still very high. Uh, and I tend to think what most people uh, from an investing point of view kind of miss when they have this conversation is for most investors, their exposure to this is probably less about what is their own direct exposure there. It doesn't tend to be very big for most global investors. But degree, but when they look at it more broadly across, you know, if China's share of any global consumer product is probably in most cases greater than their one sixth share of global GDP. Or similarly, the supply chain dependence from Walmart to EV to sun or to, or to solar, wind, or whatever is quite high. Or take, you know, frankly, what I is the most valuable company in the world, Apple. It is the one I would argue most successfully exploited um, that dimension of interdependence uh, between China and the U.S. So, you know, this took 20 or 30 years to create. I think it'll take a long time uh, to see how it plays out. Um, but I think it is what creates fundamental uncertainty at the moment. And Chip, you just spent time in uh, in Vietnam, which has been one of the places everybody's been focused on for shifting supply chains. Can you talk a little bit about Vietnam and where it is today? But also, uh, as we were chatting, the difficulty and the time embedded in actually shifting supply chains and this notion, this overly simplistic notion that, okay, there are challenges in China, I'll go to Vietnam. That's not, that's a multi-year process at a minimum for any, any, any company. But Maybe start with a little bit of an overview of what's going on in Vietnam, and you do a fair amount of investing there. You do. I mean, the first thing I'd say is, you know, uh, I think the challenge, I said this earlier, I think the challenge for investors and businesses is, you know, um, you know, each of China and the U.S. have, each, we have our own set of issues, we'll, you know, we'll play as we play, but these are huge, you know, economies, you know, 15 or 16 trillion there, 21 for us. Uh, uh, and with more limited amounts of dependence on, you know, export trade kinds of things, even there these days. So each of their ability to navigate through this may be better than everybody else who's trying to figure out how to navigate between them, both countries, companies, individuals, all of it. So the challenge may be how you navigate through all of this. Um, and I think there are some places that will be beneficiaries of it as people do look to uh, you know, kind of what sometimes we'll term kind of the N plus one or China plus one or two strategy of looking where to where to migrate. The reality is no one in the world's created the mass of uh, that sort of supply chain nexus uh, that exists within China. Uh, but there are a handful of places across Southeast Asia and India that I think will be big beneficiaries. And I think Vietnam is one at the top of the list. You know, we actually made our own first investment there a decade ago. So this is not we didn't discover this. Uh, and when we started investing there, it was really we had we were remembering the lessons learned from starting in China and India early as well. And it's a lot of the same themes that we pursued. Uh, 
around uh, both, you know, rise of consumer uh, and all the things that are related to that, as well as sort of this uh, dimension of uh, sort of supply chain uh, migration. You know, probably the most significant thing we have there today um, is probably on half or developing half the uh, logistics, light industrial, you know, ready-built factory space in the country uh, through a company called BW Industrial. We actually started in collaboration with a, uh, a provincial Binzong government there. Um, we have a, you know, we have a couple billion dollars invested there. And uh, the first thing we did turned into the largest retail mall platform. We took it public and what was the largest public offering ever done in the country. We cycled out of it. We made money. We've taken all that money back. Um, we own a stake in the largest bank that has uh, also been one of the top three public offerings ever in the country. We own a stake in the big digital payments business. We have a hotel platform uh, that has both uh, the Metropole in Hanoi, which is sort of the grand dame hotel of the country, and it's building a series of other hotel lodging products. It has a casino and Hotron as well. So we built a, a very powerful, nice little ecosystem of relationships there. I think it's one of the more interesting places. Uh, uh, it's got, you know, one of the youngest countries in the world demographically. One of the things I always find fascinating about it is for large countries, it has one of the highest female labor force particip rate, participation rates in the world. Um, so, um, uh, you know, uh, like any place, you know, you learn to navigate. But um, uh, to me, I think the Asia story for us is becoming you know, yes, we have this presence in China. We have equally long presence as we've been in India. We've now creating presence across Southeast Asia. In Asia alone, we've built, you know, a real estate, a series of real estate platforms that largely are building all of the new economy infrastructure, you know, think warehouses, data centers, all in the like, um, across all of our varying platforms as portfolio companies, probably $200 billion of AUM. So it's a big, powerful business, um, and it's creating a, a more diversified way to go capture the growth of the region without picking one country, one sector, which is going to obviously have greater volatility there. But Asia still is half the world's growth. So if you're looking to say, we're going to live in a world where growth matters, to me, it's a part of the world you have to have a point of view about. And as you said, uh, that's uh, fascinating uh, and, and uh, makes a ton of sense. India, you've been in for a long time as well. Actually, this is one of the places Rashir has uh, got a long history on as well. And I know you and Rashir have a long history too. So India has been a, a, a big market for you for years, but then increasing another one like Vietnam that you're increasingly focused on. Yeah, no, I mean, we've been in, uh, actually, the first, you know, we invested in India, I think, first time in 1995 uh, uh, in uh, HDFC, which is a, you know, home mortgage uh, business there. Still probably home mortgage penetration in India is probably still less than 10%. So um, uh, we've been there a long time. It may be one of the more powerful ecosystems we have any in the world in terms of having been there early and created a, a set of relationships and sort of success through some of those early investments, things like Barty Telecom in particular, but others that defined us on the ground there. Um, and, you know, India just crossed the UK uh, to become the fifth largest economy in the world. And, so, and uh, you know, again, it's one of those uh, places that will grow at, I don't know, six-ish. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know that it's the 10 that sort of you saw in China the last 40 years, but you know, it's a $3 trillion place growing at 6%. I mean, it's got a very powerful demographic tailwinds behind it. Um, you know, lots of challenges and issues and complexities. All of that is true. Uh, but if you sort of say, you know, what is the next big continental size place in the world that over a, over a long period of time could go become another, uh, you know, $10 trillion economy, it's probably the list of one. Yeah. Uh, and and probably get there. Population. Yeah, debate how long and all the yeah. other sorts of things, but um, it's a place, you know, it's a place I always like to have a lot of affinity for, and um, uh, it's got just a remarkable depth of, of sort of entrepreneurial talent and energy. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the reasons I, you know, one of the other comments, if you look at, you look across the world, you get a number of, you know, successful uh, Indian CEOs running global businesses. So I don't think it's an accident. Yeah. point, global CEOs. Yeah. I don't think it's an accident yeah. of having been able to navigate what's a complicated, difficult environment, and, and you now see that. Yeah. Now, uh, a place I think you're more new to, but uh, is um, is another area you see opportunity is Brazil. I don't know when you opened there, but fairly recently, uh, and we've now got you know an election going on there and uh, and, and challenges. So how, how do you see Brazil? We've actually been there about a decade. Decade. Uh, uh, 
a little more actually. And uh, but most of what we've done, a handful we've done, it's never been huge, but our business has done pretty well there. Um, obviously, currency volatility has always made it somewhat more difficult to figure out how to navigate through that. Since you know, uh, but I'd say the bulk of what we're doing today uh, tend to be playing in sort of these hydro tech kinds of businesses where the growth is sort of so powerful that it offsets uh, what is the challenge of it. But you know, I don't know. Probably the most successful thing we ever did there was a pet retailing business that you know. Uh, and lo and behold, lo and behold, Brazil, I think, is the second largest population in the world of domesticated animals. So it's a place we've been. Uh, second to this country. Second to this country. Yeah. So it's a place we've been for a while, and and uh, there's an interesting sort of growth tech scene there that is the, the dominance that we're in. But we've had good presence there, great team on the ground. People have been around for a while. Um, so we've learned how to be there as well. And it's, again, part of that sort of growth theme, if you will. Yeah. Politics always feel like, you know, invest in, you know, as investors, we never want politicians to talk about us, so maybe we won't talk about them. And I will stay away from it. Let's shift gears a little because then I've got a question that came in and then uh, another one I wanted to ask. So Kita Shah uh, is in our uh, alternative area, so she's asking uh, something near and dear to her heart. We're in a time when alternatives are no longer just supplemental to portfolios, but a core part of portfolio construction. Uh, excellent, Kita. Do you anticipate a time when private equity and debt might overtake investors' public exposures? I think, I mean, you could argue for some people it has. I mean, one of the things I've always said, if I go back and think about when I first joined uh, Warburg Kinkis and what was the pitch that I remember making, you know, the argument was always, or I heard from Lionel Pinkus and John Goldstein, but I remember it's like, why, how did they conceive? What was the idea behind the asset class? And the notion was sort of this simple version of if you could uh, take capital that people didn't need access to liquidity for, and go invest in real businesses over the time, over time, without the burden of providing liquidity on an on-demand basis, you could earn a premium return to underlying equities. That's been true. The academic stuff all says it. You can measure it over whatever period you'd like, but that's true in the U.S. It's slightly more true in Europe, and it's even more true if you go to places like emerging Asia. So the answer is that it's done that, and. Uh, as frankly, as a participant in the asset class, independent of what we're doing, one of the things I feel good about, like, you know, some asset classes don't always do what they purport to do. I think ours has. Uh, and it, and the, the, uh, I think the, the argument, I think the, the, the issue is what is uh, an institution or an individual's cap a capacity to live without liquidity? The industry doesn't promise it. It's one of its core tenets. Although, frankly, there's more innovation that are creating some uh, some alternatives about it, but I think it is a core part of it. I think if you take in the U.S. side of this in particular, you know, you look at the move from defined from defined benefit to defined contribution. I mean, the two things that are embedded in that is we've given the individual choice over their investment decision making, which most studies say is a very good thing, versus professionals who should be managing it. Importance of uh, advice, right here at Rockefeller. Exactly. And the second thing is you took away access to uh, alternative investing. That was a big part of the corporate pension side. So, you know, I think when you look ahead, I think for individuals, uh, not just sort of, uh, you know, uh, ultra high network, but increasingly down, I think there'll be a lot of innovation around creating access to alternatives um, because history says that it does provide premium to underlying uh, equities, and I think it'll constitute, it should constitute a greater proportion. The other thing I'd say about it is, By the way, just in terms of, sorry to interrupt, no, no, but, uh, you know, here, as you know, our clients are high net worth and ultra high net worth. So our advisors and our entire team, which is why we have this investment platform that Kita and many others are part of, uh, is focused on alternatives and bringing best in class, like the Warburg Pinkses of the world, to our clients through these advisors for the very reason you're talking about. If you're high net worth and ultra high net worth, you can afford the illiquidity that's embedded in, in this, these investments in return for the outperformance that, as right. you said, statistically, academics and, and the industry can rightfully say has been there through the cycle, through multiple cycles. Correct. No, look, I, that's the reason I think, you know, platforms like yours, uh, this will, this should become an increasingly, and I think, you know, your ability to play intermediary in that, you know, create diversification of, fund and you know deal with the which it should be an increasingly large portion for individuals so uh you know as i said i think the asset class has at core done what it should and uh when i look ahead i think 
frankly, the high net worth and ultra high net worth, and even below that, are going to become increasingly are increasing sources of um, where our client base will be as well. A couple of this question came in uh, with record amounts of dry powder on the sidelines for private equity managers. Do you foresee a record amount of deal activity in 2023, given the changing dynamic? We talked. I mean, obviously, a very uh, volatile and changed world, multiples, technology. So uh, is, are we on the cusp of a fair amount of activity over the next few years? Look, I mean, I, I think, you know, as we talked earlier about, I think the, the macro uncertainty of the next year is going to dominate a lot of conversation. And so we, I think we got to see where we come out of the assignment. I think at the moment, what I'd say is that recalibration of expectations between buyers and sellers is kind of still happening. And I would tell you, like, in terms of, like, deal flow as we talk about it every day, price adjustment in private markets hasn't yet taken place in the way that it has in public markets. It does always tend to lag. That's happening. And, but I, I wouldn't tell you it's happened yet. Uh, and so it's going to take a little bit of time for that to sort of play out. Look, the dry powder argument to me uh, has always been one of these things of, uh, yeah, there's a lot of money. I don't ever know in my career when I ever stood up or anybody in our firm ever stood up and said, you know what? It feels like the world has no money and everything's cheap and it's like shooting fish in a barrel. I don't really ever remember that. So, uh, so it kind of feels to me like it's just like accepted. I mean, we live in an intensely competitive environment and it's not just dry powder within private equity, but there are always alternative sources of financing for anything. So you live in a, on the other hand, there's no defined universe of what constitutes private equity. Unlike a public equity, like you have X stocks and that's what you can buy and sell. In our world, you can go create something. And so, you know, there's a part of me that sometimes thinks supply creates demand, if you know what I mean, meaning the uh, that amount of capital that sits out there doesn't drive price and occasionally sort of what I what might be, you know, irrational behavior. Sure. But that's what makes markets, too. Yeah. Uh, on a, uh, for, for Chip K on a personal basis, favorite investment. Do uh, you have one over time? Probably the one for me personally that um, was during my time in Asia was I kind of referenced earlier, which is Barty Telecom. I met the CEO there, Sunil Mittal, probably in like 98-ish. And um, it was right at the cusp of them beginning the cellular telephony industry. I met them. I think they had maybe 25 or 30,000 subscribers, uh, all in Delhi and a, and a license in Madhya Pradesh. And today, it's you know I've got I don't know 400 million subscribers, not only in India but across Africa. And a, right. Sort of a you know an iconic company within India. And he and the part to me that actually is the most um, personal about it. Uh, is that he's the same person that I remember then, despite having you know created this massively successful entity and successful himself, he's sort of the same human being. Um, that's, that's impressive. Yeah, that's great. Um, uh, another one for you. Uh, you focus uh, uh, in investment decisions. You highlight, and I think is this is part of the Warburg ethos, part, partly because you've driven it on the who as much as the quantitative. Can you talk a little bit about that. We, we have that. The Viking is our capital partner, and they focus a lot on leadership and believe that a, a better leadership team will, on average, make a better decision and increase in value, whether it's public or private, over time. But this has been something that's been core to your career and, and work. So yeah, look, I, mean, I mean, you captured it, right? I've always sort of said, you know, who matters as much as what? And, you know, we've made a lot of money and some uninteresting stuff with some enormously talented people. And, you know, frankly, we've lost money in what felt like the, you know, next cool thing and something that didn't go right. And, uh, it's one of the reasons, you know, we spend lots of time on deciding the who. Uh, and especially, I think, from the time in Asia, that's a place in the world where it matters even more. And just because of the immaturity of the environment, it's a harder thing. Uh, it's a harder thing to assess. It's also where the ecosystems that we build around sector and geography matter so much, right? Because the best way to calibrate somebody is by asking their friends that you already did business with, whether they're the somebody you should do business with. And the best way to sell yourself is to tell them you're the one that, you know, was worked collaboratively with their friend. And so that ecosystem effect to me is a huge source of comparative advantage for us. I'm sure, and particularly in those places where really nobody's been there as long as you and as deep as you in, in the different growth markets we talked about. Um, you've been... Uh, with the firm for two thirds of its existence, uh, the CEO for nearly one third of the history of Warburg Pinkus, which is incredible. Um, and, and you know, a huge compliment. You're not going to take a trip. You're going to move right past it. But talk about steady, consistent 
uh, leadership. Um, what's your secret to that? Uh, it, it, it's so rare. I mean, yeah, you know, to what would you attribute that? And maybe you know, you're more willing to talk about this when the when the run is over and you're looking back. But today, what you know, uh, that's an incredible uh, accomplishment. Obviously, great for the firm, for investors, for employees. What's the secret sauce for Chip K? I look, I've always felt like, uh, you know, there's, there's, um, you have to have a healthy, you have to understand, you have to have a healthy appreciation for luck and not think it's all talent. And I think a lot of people that end up with uh, degrees of success end up attributing too much of it to themselves and too little of it to circumstance. And therefore, and then they become somebody that maybe isn't the best version of what got them there. And I think I've seen that movie in other places. And I think uh, uh, for me, it's always, uh, it's not been about, you know, status or achievement or the like. It's, you know, I've taken seriously what it means to kind of be a partner in a firm and to be somebody that leads that partnership. And, you know, it's not being, you know, loved or, or, uh, uh, or feared. Uh, it's about measuring up. And, you know, the people show up every day and they show up because in part because they, they have confidence in sort of uh, the organization and the culture that you've been a part of. Um, but that's a, you know, uh, it's, but to me, the, the core of it is, um, you know, loving what you do, seeing people and not getting changed by it, uh, not getting changed by success in ways that, uh, I think it'd be complicated. That's a, that's a fantastic answer, which, which many would not give because they can't see it because it's hard to see over the years because of the success and the sense that people have, of, wait a minute, this has to be, I, I, I do have to be that good. And so credit to you. And, and we talk about that here. I, I try to implement that as much as I can, which is the job of leadership is to, is to set the vision and the culture and be steady around it. And, be reliable day in and day out. We've done this for decades. So, um, uh, last question is um, uh, words of advice for young people coming into the finance industry today versus 10, 20, 30, or 36 years ago. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, it's, I, you know, I would, I kind of probably tend to talk about two things when people ask me that. One is sort of always, you know, recognizing the talent versus luck thing and remembering it early. Um, it's not everything's going to go your way, and frankly, part of part of success is learning how to deal with failure. Uh, and um, for some people, that can become paralyzing. And anybody who's been at this long enough has not only experienced success; they've experienced a lot of failure. So you got to learn how to deal with that. Uh, and you know, putting it in a frame where you don't take yourself too seriously when things are good, or don't get too down when times are bad, and learning how to—I think, as you said—sort of find that balance through it. But the, the, the more personal one for me, I would say, is um, uh, defining success on your own terms, not as it's defined by somebody else. And I think sometimes we all fall prey to the kind of the somebody's set of rankings of accomplishment or someone else's definition of success, whatever some societal norm may be, as opposed to kind of whatever, what, what makes you happy, what drives you. And... Uh, if you if you if you define success in the eyes of somebody else, the answer is you'll probably always be a little unhappy, because someone else will always uh, do better, run faster, do whatever. Someone will always sort of exceed your accomplishment, uh, and I think it'll leave you somewhat frustrated. Whereas if you define it by yourself, I don't know, you know, you live with it. You live with the good and the bad, and and uh, I think that's not only true professionally. But I think it makes you a better person, and you know. Uh, and it gives you more balance to your family and, you know, uh, your wife and your kids and, and recognizing that what you've let, what you've done for them is create a, is something they can relate to and, uh, and understand. Um, so I don't know, maybe my, I think that's spectacular. Uh, you can see, uh, all the people listening today and who will listen to this, uh, why Chip K has been the leader at Warburg Pincus for the time he's been, uh, you know, Chip, I always end with the quote, but I'm going to use yours, defining success in your, on your own terms, not on those defined by somebody else. Chip K, I'm going to add that to my list of quotations. No, because it's a hugely insightful thing. Uh, and as you said, good for Warburg Pincus, good for Rockefeller Capital Management, but also good for people wherever they are, even in their personal lives. 
So thank you for being here today. Congratulations on an incredible run. Uh, keep going. You're, you're breaking history here now. Just keep going. Uh, well, thanks for the invite to join. It's been fun. I mean, you and I have known each other for a long time. And congrats on the huge success of building Rockefeller Capital. I mean, it's been, I remember, I remember talking very early days when you were beginning this, and it's it's pretty awesome what you've been able to do. So thanks for the invitation. Thanks, Chip. I appreciate that. And it's great to have you here today. And to our clients, uh, colleagues at Rockefeller and other friends of Rockefeller, uh, we hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, Chip K, Chief Executive Officer of Warburg Pincus. Have a great rest of the day, uh, and we'll see you all soon. Take care.